This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I have a friend of mine coming in from North Carolina, Aaron Livo Bank. We are going to talk about debt financing and the reemergence of the health club sector. Aaron, good to have you on the show. Likewise, good to be on. Awesome. So, uh, you know, as a, a, a debt provider, given that's been your career, um, you know, your first goal is always preservation of capital, making some money on the interest, helping companies grow, um, and, and probably a lot of success stories along the way. So why don't you give your background background on Live Oak, and then let's talk about the, the new normal. Yeah, sure thing. So I've been with, uh, you know, Live Oak was founded back in uh, 2008, solely going to be a niche-focused, veterinary-only bank. Um, and then from there, we've kind of slowly grown. And you flash forward today, we're in 30 different industries across the board nationwide. Started in the bank in 2014 as an underwriter, um, then kind of ran, transitioned into sales in our medical real estate division. And, you know, we've, as a whole, whenever we look into a new sector, it's always targeting recession resistant industries and really kind of becoming niche lenders, even within an industry. And so in 2017, we started researching the fitness space. Um, then 2018, myself and my colleague, Angelo Medici kind of got involved and, and launched this, this uh, vertical from the ground up. You know, we like to think ourselves as niche lenders within a niche space. So even you know, look at fitness across the board, high default rate, high risk, very, you know, fad and trend driven. And so focusing more on your tried and true, your well-rounded concepts, your established multi-unit borrowers that have access to capital um, and providing them with a, a debt platform to really enable them to kind of take that next step as they grow. Got it. So when you take a look at investing. Uh, behind a private equity fund or some kind of institutional capital versus investing directly with an entrepreneur? How, how do you guys think about that? Yeah. So, you know, we, we look at you know, all types of sorts of deals. You know, we're, we're dealing with the, the onesie twosie, you know, small unit operator, as well as the, the, you know, 20 plus unit access to institutional capital. Um, but first and foremost, we want to hear your story. We want to hear why you got involved. You know, an intro call, very rarely are we actually discussing, you know, financial numbers. We, we can get that information down the road, but we really want to vet you and understand your story and how we met with, mesh with that from a, a relationship standpoint. Got it. So when you take a look at private equity fund comes in, buys a platform, let's say pre-COVID, they, you know, came to an agreement on a seven, eight, let's say seven or eight times EBITDA deal. You know, where's kind of your comfort zone from a leverage ratio and, you know, how has that changed, uh, you know, given the current situation where there probably isn't any real even? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So historically, uh, we like to think of ourselves as a, a senior debt holder. Um, you know, we don't like to go beyond kind of that 4X leverage um, is kind of where our, our comfort zone in this industry is. And beyond that, we kind of think of that as high leverage and really like to stay kind of in the more three to four times. Uh, and, and you know that's an interesting nuance now when we kind of look at this gap where you know you might have been shut down for three six nine months don't really have that existing cash flow existing EBITDA to lend on and so what we've really been structuring deals especially you know you had an uh, existing operator great book of business looking to go and, and acquire another one it's kind of a balancing act in our eyes of how do we provide the seller with the comfort of getting some cash out on the table 
but not over leverage the business day one to the point where it can't support the debt moving forward. And so we've uh, had a lot of success structuring kind of tranche financing uh, with an earnout based on a three month trailing EBITDA number um, to kind of keep those ratios in line and, and truly making a, a, a product that is comfortable with the buyer, comfortable with the seller, and then ultimately protects the bank's interest as well. Got it. So, you know, there's been a proliferation of specialty finance companies that, you know, traditionally you go to a bank, you borrow money, they want interest payments, they want principal back over time on a on an amortization schedule. You know, there's a lot of groups now, whether it's insurance companies or pension funds or endowment funds that are basically just looking for a return and a fixed return um, and basically don't want the money back from the uh, from the borrower. So can you kind of give us a little insight into how you think about that? Um, is that a good thing? Is that kind of chasing returns and creating like this capital stack that's forever on a company? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's certainly a, a balancing act there. You know, we as a bank are, are much more, you know, true amortiz fully amortizing term loans, probably looking at a five to seven year amortization schedule. That's not to say that, you know, there's not value in, in getting uh, an AM free, especially in this kind of interim gap um, where it really en enables you to ramp up to what your pre-existing EBITDA was. And, and so we've actually had, uh, you know, we're a little bit more constricted being an FDIC bank, uh, regulated bank, as opposed to some non-bank lenders out there that can, uh, you know, do exactly what you alluded to. And so we, we've had some success as well with partnering, kind of bridging that gap. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, without naming names, how have you guys treated, you know, the uncontrollable nature of COVID shutdowns, members on freeze, you know, I'm assuming you believe on the other side, we get back to some semblance of normalcy, um, but you've got a bank and you've got your constituents and you've got your constraints. So how do you kind of balance that? Yeah, it's interesting, Pete. And, you know, no day is the same. One day I find myself playing the role of morale coach and, and talking someone off the ledge. And the next I'm competing in a, a highly competitive leverage buyout. Um, and so, you know, so much of this is, is a lot of geographically driven. Um, we've seen our portfolio across the board, you know, in states that have been able to open and, and re remain open have proven extremely well. And if you use membership base is a forward looking metric, you know, some of our largest uh, exposures are, are operating right now at an 85 to 90% membership on a year over year basis, which we view uh, extremely um, uplifting and, and, you know, further uh, testament to our investment thesis in this industry. Now, states, California, New York, New Jersey, uh, much different story there. Yeah. So, you know, as a bank, you typically want to look at, uh, as you mentioned, you know, recession resilient or recession resistant businesses. Debt investors typically get involved in deals that have relatively low technology risk. Um, how do you feel about the health club industry now with the flood of venture capital dollars urging people to work out from their home, probably not getting any results over time? Uh, probably not making too many new friends, although they, they preach community through a LED screen, which I'm highly critical of. Uh, so how do you kind of think of the health club industry? Do you, do you look at it and say, 
you know, technology risk, like I, I, you deal with it every day when you get a new app that somebody wants you to download and that's just kind of the new world or do you view leverage ratios maybe having to compress because there is a lot of technology risk? Yeah, I, th- I think, uh, you know, th- look, there, there's a lot and certainly a lot of unknown there, but I think you and I sit on the same side of this, that there's no doubt the industry is going to be changed forever. Uh, the tech is innovations are at all time high. And, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing for, you know, your tried and true membership model. But I think at the end of the day, you know, there's nothing new. Uh, you know, there's always going to be a Bowflex or some new concept that was good. What did that change the industry forever? No, the, the membership model is, is tried and true. And I think getting, um, you know, coming out of this, you know, we as humans inherently want that per- human to human interaction and are willing to pay a premium for it. It's the same reason that, you know, you're willing to pay $10 for a beer at a bar versus sitting on your couch at home. And I think never more than now, especially with, you know, corporate uh, buildings possibly not returning to a, a work from the office setting. So you're going to miss that human interaction and you're going to search for it elsewhere. Um, and, and I think health clubs stand to benefit from that. Yeah. When you take a look at um, some of the boutique fitness studios, you know, what's your current thesis on that? Obviously, with the c- capacity constraints. Um, it's been hard for any of them to to actually get above break even. Um, but but do you, do you view that longer term as something you guys would finance, or you kind of like the the bigger boxes? Yeah, as a whole, we've shied uh, away from the smaller boutiques. Um, kind of saw the writing on the wall that there was you know too much concentration out there, too many offerings, and and if there is an inevitable downturn, are you going to want your yoga membership, your uh, cardio membership, your strength membership, and, and, you know, eventually you're going to need to consolidate if you're forced to. Um, and so we've, uh, benefited from that from a portfolio standpoint. Um, and th- there's no question that the capacity restraints limit group training far more than they do a big box. Um, that's really just reliant on your monthly draw and, and doesn't, you know, really care if you show up to the gym or not, as long as they're able to continue to draft your account. Now, with that said, the boutiques do have a stronger loyalty, um, much more drive to get back to that facility right now. You, you might know the personal owner, have a relationship with the trainer there, and, that, and that's kind of your driving force. But you know, I think for the long term, um, they're, they're in for a world of hurt, especially for the smaller kind of mom and pop shops. Got it. So a couple of things were going on pre-COVID where um, a Planet Fitness franchisee would say, um, you know, look, here, here's my, here's my EBITDA of this location, but I also want you to look at, you know, the prices that these, these locations are selling for. So just to give you an example, somebody pre COVID said to us, well, I've got five planet fitnesses and I know I can sell them for, um, for $40 million. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think on a loan to value, you know, I should at least get, you know, 50% loan to value. I kind of started to throw some other metrics, you know, out the window. And I think anytime there's an exuberant market, you know, people start to enter into a, into a gray area and, you know, a club that that's got a shovel in the ground somehow is now, you know, valued at what it's going to be worth in three years. So how have you guys stayed disciplined where have you gotten comfort on on stretching or maybe kind of recalibrating how you think about debt and asset value? 
Yeah, and, and, and this is where it, it becomes so much more of a transactional by transactional basis because um, we are first and foremost cash flow lenders. And so how do you as a cash flow lender get comfortable when there is no cash flow to lend off of? And so then it really comes down to what is your relationship with that owner and operator? What is your relationship with maybe their equity sponsor? Um, and really understanding their run rate from a equity and balance sheet standpoint. Um, and then you kind of mold those two and get comfortable that, look, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. They do have the equity backing behind them to continue to support a ramp up of this nature. And then how do we sprinkle on some senior debt um, that, that enables them to do so? Gotcha. So when you going back to the point about you guys putting money into a private equity back deal, versus going in and if you know Dave Gannelin and I decided to open up and we got 10 locations but we don't have quote unquote institutional capital behind that why we got to sign a personal guarantee and why the private equity guys don't yeah so you know just to use rough metrics off our, our heads you know we typically uh require pgs um when you you true ebitda is two and a half million or less um, but, you know, moving beyond that, you know, if, if it's just like our thesis is with the PG, regardless, if, if this is your dream, you believe in it, why would you, it's almost more of a red flag if you're not willing to PG it. And, and we certainly understand that once you continue to grow and grow that, uh, you know, you're inevitably wanting to get that off the table. And then it comes down to, you know, truly finding comfort with that sponsor and vetting them. You know, is, is it the first time that they've entered the wellness space? Um, you know, when things do go belly up, do they continue to, uh, you know, cash the check? Because to be frank, the equity group is only as good as the next check they're going to write. And so, you know, we've really for, have been very fortunate in seeing that, you know, the equity back deals that we had kind of going into COVID wow, those sponsors really did what they said they were going to do, um, enhance the balance sheet coming out of this because, you know, our, our inevitably the uh, it's going to be a situation where only the strong survive and in some ways stand to benefit um, from the environment around them, just given that, you know, not all of the comp competition will. And so there will be an influx of, you know, pent up demand membership available for those that did have institutional backing or access to liquidity on their own end to kind of get them through this uh dark year. Got it. Good answer. We're still, we're still going to question whether, whether Dave and I want to sign the PG. We believe in yeah. this. I swear. Yeah. yeah. I don't know no, if, we, if COVID, if COVID 2020, if COVID 22 hits, you know, I, I, I got a big personal guarantee on the line with you. Yeah. Guys. No, I understood. We, we always <laughs> use the, uh, the eye of the tiger analogy here. So, you know, that's when it comes down to us meeting you face to face and, understanding the owner operator, the management team, who all's involved and are they fighters? Because that, you know, those are the people you want to do business with. Yeah. Understood. You know, when you take a look at companies that have taken PPP money and now there's an employee retention credit um, or other government programs, I don't know the answer to this. And I figured, you know, why, why not ask an expert? So how does the PPP money rank if you guys have a debt facility, in does the PPP loan, let's say it's not forgiven and the company used it for other purposes besides payroll, does that somehow sit ahead of you, sit behind you? Do you have veto rights on them taking a PPP? 
Yeah, so it's an, an interesting question. And we, as a bank, you know, we absolutely have a conventional and, and larger uh, specialty group. But you know, first and foremost, we're the largest SBA lender in the country. And so we have to put an abundance of reputational risk at stake um, when it does come to an SBA federally backed program like the PPP. Um, and so, you know, we were heavily involved in, in continuing to be in ensuring that all of our customers have access to that capital um, because the way it was designed and, and very lenient on, on these industries uh, within the halo world that, uh, you know, were heavily impacted. Um, and so, you know, if anything, it's ensuring that, look, did you do continue to do what you said you were going to do? Did you use these funds wisely? Um, and then, you know, we have full comfort. Gotcha. That makes sense. So do you view, you know, somebody comes back to you, somebody comes back to you right now and says, Hey, I got an opportunity. I know my, my metrics aren't kind of in, in your strike zone of your two and a half or three times, but Aaron, I got to pick, I, I can pick up these 10 clubs right now, or I go into these vacant boxes for some reason, I don't want to put equity in. So my first call is to call you, you know, how, how do you kind of, how does that conversation go? Um, you know, from a risk sharing and an opportunity sharing, and maybe for people to understand, you know, if this co- if this company does what it says it's going to do, you're not really benefiting from the spoils of that because you're not in the equity. Maybe explain that for our layman's uh, terms here. Yeah, it's a, it's a question we get a lot. Look, my uh, my cash reserves have been hindered. You know, I got to preserve that liquidity to protect protect my existing assets, and and I always frame it with. You know, that's great. We're all for preserving equity. We don't want you to be in a situation where you're putting all of your eggs in one basket. But why should we as the debt holder take all the risk coming out of this, especially when, you know, yes, there's a vaccine on the way, the light appears at the end of the tunnel, but we don't know how much that tunnel is still to go or, or what could come around the horizon. And so uh, it's very much a balancing act and, and something that we have a ton more flexibility if you're coming to us as an existing debt holder within our portfolio that we can restructure, work with you on that uh, you know, pre-existing senior piece. Um, if you're coming to us from an outsider, inevitably there's going to be greater limitations there. And, and how do we get comfortable restructuring that someone, you know, they might have been perfectly, you know, in a very comfortable three times leverage coming into this. Well, if their EBITDA tank, that leverage remained the same, we're not in a position to refinance that debt. And we do have to take that into it with a grain of salt if we're looking at, you know, carving out an outside, you know, ramp up tranche facility or what have you. Um, and, and so it, it really comes down to there is, you know, what type of flexibility, if, if you weren't in an existing customer margin, were you able to get with your existing piece? Um, and then how do we negotiate and structure a deal that doesn't require you to pour all of your eggs into this basket? but doesn't put us in a position where we're over leveraging you day one. Um, and so that's where, you know, we've really kind of honed in and, you know, walked through these kind of earnouts and, and tranche uh, draws um, moving forward for the, for the time being, while there is so much uncertainty. Got it. And then well, one, one question I have, you know, you, you touted earlier in a positive way, touted, I'll use that as a positive. Yeah. Um, you've touted that you're a big investor in across the entire sector. If I've got clubs in New York City and I'm under a brand and I've got a, a debt facility from you um, and then you you lend money to my competitor as well, do you view that from your standpoint is like, yeah, I've kind of diversified my risk. And at the same time, you know, I could probably 
infuse maybe some knowledge that I have across the country of what other people are doing. But at the same time, you know, I'm posting up against a competitor and we're all basically running money for you in a, in, in a sense or borrowing money and, and, and using it. So how do you think about that? Cause I think the yeah. world has gotten very complicated where right. there's money sources all coming in from the same pockets, Yep. you know? So how, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think I can certainly understand why why someone might go that route in diversifying their own risk. But I, I think that goes against everything we as a bank stand for. You know, we are a relationship bank first and foremost, um, and, and wanting to not only you know do this initial transaction with you, but how do we continue to help you grow uh, every step along the way? And I, I think if we were to be you know short minded like that and and not protect those that stood by us from the get go. Um, we'd be doing ourselves, our reputation, and, and the whole industry a tremendous disservice. So uh, that's something that we are, are very against. Um, I'm, I'm sure others do it. And look, I, I get it from a credit standpoint why you might want to diversify that. Um, but I just think that goes against everything I'm about. Got it. So in closing here, what's uh, what's kind of the minimum number of clubs, minimum pre-COVID EBITDA uh, in order to uh, to put a call into your email and see if you're interested in uh, in financing deals? Yeah, I, I, I would say from a financing dollar standpoint, anything from the 500,000 to, you know, 15, 20 million. And, and getting beyond that, we, we do have access to, you know, capital markets and syndicates that um, can, can look at larger transactions. But I think it more so comes down to a leverage standpoint. Um, and, you know, looking at the cash flow, because that's what first and foremost, we are cash flow lenders. So, um, you know, wanting to stay within that, you know, three to four times leverage and then looking to structure a deal that's uh, amicable for all parties. Got it. Great. You got any quotes that you're uh, that you got any favorite quotes down there? Yeah, not a uh, not much of a Ray Raw or inspirational quote guy, but one that uh, you know gets passed on a lot, more of a live oakism, and I think it's applicable now more than ever in this industry. Is is panic slowly? You know, I, I think we look back Mar- February, March of 2020, the world was coming to an end. A lot of us were having an oh shit moment. Is our entire portfolio, all of our work going to go to nothing? Um, yeah. And the fact of the matter is the industry has been incredibly resilient. And so, you know, taking a deep breath, understanding the data, looking at the forward looking metrics and, uh, you know, sticking to your initial thesis and not, you know, wavering through that no matter how dark things go. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm glad we uh, were able to connect on that uh, that webinar. Let's see if we can help continue to grow the industry. And uh, we look forward to you financing some of our, our next best ideas that are coming down the pike. Likewise, Pete. Really appreciate it. Awesome. All right. Good stuff. As we continue to build our Halo Talks email notification database, want to offer you a free $10 instant gift card from our friends at Promotion Vault. Also to show you how easy it is to offer your members and prospects and clients the ability to get desired actions out of them and reward them in real time, go to halotalks.com, put your email address into the pop-up box, see how it works, get a free $10 gift card from us, and uh, keep listening and making everybody great.